Welcome back to The Development Dilemma. This episode is the second part of my conversation with the fantastic Professor Funmi Olunisakin. And this is a standalone conversation, but I would recommend listening into the first part, which sets the stage for it as well. So for those who aren't familiar as a refresher, Funmi is an activist at heart from a days of student protests in Nigeria and is a professor of security leadership and development at King's College London and a founding director of the African Leadership Centre. In our discussion, we explored the security apparatus from all over the world that situates itself in Africa and how often it perpetuates colonial structures. And taking the example of South Sudan in 2011, how there was a real missed opportunity that Funmi saw when it came to envisaging the state there. We then switch to touch on her personal experiences as a black woman in UK academia and her thoughts on the movement of black lives and the real progress that's been made in discourse, but that needs to continue. I hope you enjoy. As always, you can find out about new episodes, links to interesting articles, and also some new events I'm hoping to host in the coming months in Nairobi on our social media or on our newsletter. And better yet, you can reach out to share your thoughts and maybe a guest or a topic I should be covering. Thanks. Having worked in the UN, having worked in councils around security and peace building architecture, the vision of peace that the UN have, and in some ways, impose upon African countries prevents the natural creation of a more relevant and legitimate state, and it might not be even a state. The mm. Europe and its boundaries mm. were never established mm. through some peaceful process. Mm. It was very much through mm. different forms of negotiation, including violence. So I have to say, though, that having worked in the UN, uh, of course, the framework that we used to in intervene in particular countries that were at war mm. were exactly the framework of li the liberal order. Mm. You can't use any other instrument, but what is the dominant instrument? Mm. That's the vision of peace of the countries that shaped the United Nations. has always been about a liberal agenda. That means that you have elections, and you see evidence of those elections you elect new leaders, mm. and you make assumptions that everything will be fine. Alongside, you do economic recovery, it's liberal economics, and then you restructure the security order mm. so that people are protected. On paper, it actually looks good. Okay. As a student mm. of this, I understood that logic. Mm. When I started to think differently about it was when I realized that that logic cannot apply to places you cannot seek to build new institutions when the leadership framework that shapes those institutions is not right. And what do I mean by that? When you will intervene, and South Sudan is a good experience. We had an opportunity to build a brand new state. And it's not always that we had that, because mm -hmm. Africa had different terms in the post-colonial period. They wanted to retain the colonially inherited borders. When South Sudan became 
independent in 2011. That was a unique situation in mm. a sense. But here's how we intervened in the conflict in South Sudan. We would have elections first. And in having those elections, you already preset the stage around the protagonists who were the ones that were sitting in that space. Okay? So the existing powerful elite. Existing powerful elite. Mm. And in most places, that's what we do. The elections and the context favors those powerful elite. Mm. And only after that, we started talking about anything such as constitution and so on and so forth. Mm. In another world, and this is my argument to my own African colleagues and scholars yeah. and students of international peace and security and peace building, that leadership comes before institutions where there's no institution to speak about. And mm. what does that leadership mean? It's not about the person at the top of a vertical hierarchy. Mm. It's about the questions you frame in order to establish mutuality. What are the things that we value the most as a nation. You have a referendum around those things. What are the three priorities over the next generation that we feel that our natural resources can provide for us? You see how democratic orders can have legitimacy if they're framed around the needs of the people. You do that three or four times before you ask the question, who is best placed hmm. to help us implement these priorities over the next period or five years? So you don't wait for the institutions to no, come around? Because there were no institutions to speak of. You, hmm. you, had, a, you had a South Sudan that was yeah. part of a Sudan that they fought its institutions and its structures. Yeah. And when it came to time to help us put arms around them to create the space in which they could have their own conversation mm. about the future. We still did the same liberal thing, have elections and select mm. leaders. So actually, our international interventions reinforced the, the power structures mm. and the inequalities in society. Whereas, if we say it's a new state, can we negotiate the terms of living mm. together? You do that mm. with certain national priorities. How do we yeah. use our resources, our constitution? because the rest of the world is there helping you manage it. Why are we there as the United Nations if we can't reverse the order of how we do mm. things in order to help them get to mm. have the lasting answers to their problems? So to my mind, elections of leaders were the last things yeah. we should have had. We should have had first referenda. Interestingly, if you contrast that to the colonial experience, what the colonial leaders used to say at the time in many of these countries, when you want independence, you're not yet ready for independence. Mm -hmm. You need the structures. Let's have yes. a referendum. Then you do that referendum. Let's have another one to do this. And they maintained their stay in that place for as long as possible. Yeah. But when you're now trying to create a new state to bring all these people together, <laughs> instead of constructing, helping them build a binding mutuality so that leadership yeah. emerges from yeah. the collective engagement mm. of society, we helped the same leaders mm. stay in power. Within two years, those leaders had guns out yeah. fighting each other. Just under a different name. So do I understand why the liberal peace order is what is brought out all the time? I do, because that's the only thing those leaders know. Yeah. But yeah. do I accept 
that we should just simply bring that to bear in those countries? No, because we have sufficient legitimacy to create the space for these people to have a conversation about the kind of future they want. So if we didn't have vested interest in supporting leader X or Y, who might make yeah. access to resources and all yeah. of that better for us, yeah. we would probably not do that. As I hear it, it's a call to build, well, not nationhood, but build community links, engagement, and understanding of what you would want to build mm. before you go ahead and, let's say, get the institutions, which ultimately only reflect the state of readiness you as a community, as a society have. Yes, because in a sense, Brahimi said this in relation to, like Brahimi, said this in relation to Afghanistan, for example, that it is arrogance to say the least, to think that as in an, a set of international actors, you can come and nation build, mm. right, for people. You can't. Yeah. You need to be able to set the conditions for them to think about mm. the kind of nation and communities yeah. they want. And that's what we yeah. don't do. With all of those money spent yeah. on peacekeeping operations. Um, so African agency is missing. African yeah. agency is yeah. almost lost. But not African agencies is what you're saying. Yeah. Let's first get agency yes. before yes, yes, we yes. jump to more agency. Oh, absolutely. There are three things going on simultaneously. There are three sets of conversations all the time right? Yeah. The conversation happening between individuals and groups mm. in a political community, for want yeah. of a better word, which is shaped by historical narratives and identities, and which sometimes becomes really, really violent, because those who are guarding the institutions around them have more or less do not have a meaningful relationship with that process and that conversation because they have instrumentalized the institutions. We have a facade that there are institutions that are meant mm. for the people that actually are legitimate on the basis of what the people want. The inheritance elite inherited institutions mm. that look like the states yeah. that they came from. That arose from colonial institutions. Yes. They took over colonial institutions. And that conversation has never been had properly. Mm. People have never had a conversation about the terms upon, on which they will live together. That's mm. one set mm. of problems. And mm. then between those states, those institutions that mirror the colonial institutions, and you can look at the security sector, for example, in many cases, until recently, they really retain the colonial security system. Mm. And so the conversations between these elite yeah. that have more or less occupied the space of this um, institutions, you then have a conversation that is only between those elite, mm. and we call them regional institutions, whatever it is, yeah. but it's actually a club of yeah. leaders. Some people used to say it's a club of dictators, it's changing, mm. but it's a club of elite, yeah. elite that do not speak back to the reality yeah. of the system. And in that space, which is why you notice what you notice about the pan-African behavior of African youth, those people have learned, the youth in Africa, or the human beings in these spaces, have learned to move transnationally. They interact through mm. music, through they move across borders. And yet this elite talk about borders that are state closed and mm. so on. If you look across Africa, there is no state which has the monopoly of the means of violence and whose border mm. is not porous. Mm. The porosity of borders is what Africans 
truly want, but those inherited systems already make assumptions about mm. borders that should be yeah. tight and tightly maintained. Mm. That is an isolated elite narrative. But the third set of issues has to do with how this elite engage with the global space. So you have yet another group of elite who, for good or bad, actually have the national interests of the countries at heart, okay? Mm. And therefore engage this African elite who they know have abdicated the space, the responsibility, I speak generally, yeah. of looking after their people, but actually have occupied that space for a long time, have personal mm. and group interests. They engage them on the basis of the personal and group mm. interests. So that completes in every way the marginalization of the African, of the ordinary African. That's the point yeah. I'm trying to make. And that marginalization also means that they don't have proper dignity. Mm. And the lack of dignity of the ordinary African in their own country transfers over yeah. to the organizations in which they work. Yeah. It transfers over to the ways in which they're treated abroad. Mm. And so that layer, the layers of complexity. Yes. And the call to action there is for leadership and understanding leadership does not need to sit in these institutions, mm. but leadership and building, as you said really beautifully, mm. this binding mutuality yes. such that when it comes to that moment of places to leverage power yes. and to wedge that door open, the right types of power and views Absolutely. and ideas are Absolutely. there. Yes, I, my challenge as an academic is to constantly remember and remind my own colleagues and my students that the knowledge they build is not only, so share that knowledge by all means in the journals, academic journals where academics share it. But if you were building this knowledge in the first place as a researcher, as an academic, to change your continent, to change the governance, to change your own life, you must really go into the spaces, the streets, the, mm -hmm. you know, engage with the musicians, engage with the theater, engage with the activists, engage across the board and build mutuality there in order to transform the narrative, mm -hmm. the discourse. And we've been taught, again, through the, systematically through those academic, Western academic structures, that one form of knowledge matters than the other. And that's why in, transnational, in tra translational terms, we cannot stick mm. to the traditional way of producing knowledge mm. just for academic knowledge. We have to produce knowledge that translates into all spheres of life. That's my own idea mm. of impact. And you do it over time. You do it consistently over time before you can really affect the mindset mm. and then I begin to translate it back into policy instruments and so on. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for me. So for me, I'd love to open up a different space hmm. of discussion because your academia and the institutions you've set up are so important. But it's very interesting to get a sense of your own experiences navigating this. Hmm. You mentioned earlier realizing that things aren't as 
rosy as they seem when you go to the UK and you see the difference between how they paint their country and subsequently paint yours. I'm just curious how you found that and how you find yourself continuing to live in the UK as well. Mm. Mm. My goodness. So my own narrative is this. I was born in the UK because my parents were studying there. Mm. I left the UK at the age of under two years and raised by my grandmother in Nigeria. So when I went back to the UK, I didn't have any recollection of life in the UK, but I had visited a couple of times. And when you visit the UK, it's not the same as living in the UK, right? So living in the UK and actually seeing that, how I viewed myself was not even anything close to how I was viewed mm. by people who engaged me whose space I engaged on a, norm, uh, on a regular basis because I'm not sure that I was being engaged. Actually, okay. I, I was engaging yeah. that space because I needed to. And it was in two or three dimensions that I would begin to see that actually the world that is in my head about myself and about my people and my country is so radically different from the world in the head of mm. the people I was engaging. One thing that used to shock me because we studied European history and all those things, was how little people knew about Africa. And so you saw someone from Nigeria, and quite a few times somebody would say to me, would ask me whether I know Paul or X or Y from Kenya, right? <laughs> so I have to explain, all right, in, <laughs> in more than 50 countries in Africa. <laughs> but I'm not sure whether it's always sank in. But also to begin to see how one saw you only... Uh, in terms of poverty, in terms of all of those really demeaning things that happen on the continent. So there's a perspective of Africa uh, and a perspective of you, therefore, that mm. is about the low life, right? So all this thing that we talked about, dignity, about the sense of who you are, mm. about pride, yeah. all of those things are not what people saw. And so you're raised in a particular way to hold your head high, you're mm. this, and you also looked at that space as that's the place where, as a woman, people didn't question my right to occupy certain spaces as a woman, so some things fitted, some things didn't fit. But I think lastly is about knowledge. Yeah, somebody who was in an academic environment to constantly have to confront the idea that knowledge that comes from your part of the world mm. is not quite the kind of knowledge it does it's not superior the institutions there are not they know what they should be so there was one perennial view of africa constantly mm. of course this that a small number of people would have engaged the continent or they knew the continent mm. like the back of their hands but the vast majority hadn't engaged yeah. the continent in that way and they had poor knowledge of the continent mm. i think i spent a lot of time trying to shape that mm. and when i first established the fellowship program that brought Africans in. Part of what I needed to navigate, part of what I needed to show was that the Africans coming will not lower the standard of the mm. institution. And actually, in one of the years when the master's program started, out of seven of them, three got distinctions. But mm. also, if you saw the classroom, the richness the, mm. of the debate in the classroom as a result of their presence, it was also a moment of learning for many of my colleagues who would then ask me on the corridors, when are the new fellows coming in, mm -hmm. having seen that quality? And I think that if you had to wake up every day and confront the idea that you were seen as inferior, it takes yeah. its toll. Mm. And therefore, 
I was navigating multiple identities at once. Mm. The African identity, and I must say to you, the Nigerian identity, <laughs> where Nigeria still is much maligned, mm. and being a woman, being a woman that is an academic, being a black woman, so my blackness, my Africanness, mm. my gender, but black women are a rare species in the professoriate, mm. in the academy in the UK, even mm. up till now. So having strong networks, building mm. was vitally important. And I think if I, what helped me and my colleagues get the ALC started is the fact that we created bonds and networks of like-minded people. Mm. And I would say to you that it's very easy to feel like a victim, to feel marginalized. Mm. The networks I created to respond to those issues were a lifesaver for me. Mm. They were my own way of responding to a system that mm. didn't see me, yeah. that didn't see actually the realities of the mm. issues that mm. I was dealing with. And I'm not sure I would have stayed in academia actually had I just stayed on my own and mm. produced knowledge. I don't think an academic career is what I would have had. Mm. But I therefore became deliberate in utilizing the university space to expand yeah. my knowledge base, but to expand my network whilst I was building strong outside mm. networks of people who wanted to change the system. But at the mm. time, it wasn't the UK system we were trying to change, actually. Mm. It was Africa we were trying to change in different ways. We were trying to really, really address the question of autocratic leadership, dictatorial yeah. role in Nigeria, in parts of West Africa at the time. And so yeah. that meant building networks. Mm. It meant building knowledge bases and so on. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And your story and as the vice president at King's College on the side of international engagement and service, you both have had great success thanks to finally people seeing more of the qualities that you bring. And also, I think to many young students, I'm sure, are a wonderful example of what can be achieved and what can be done if you take, as you said, a thoughtful, strategic approach to what is unjust, and one shouldn't face that, but what is an unjust system. So thank you oh, thank for you. that example. I'm thinking of, of course, the movements for black lives, yes, the progression yes. that we've seen in the UK for more discussion, more inclusion of BIPOC community members, mm. and then the very strong backlash we see in government and mm. other forms, mm. and against academia mm. as a place where some of these ideas Absolutely. Are, are more held. Absolutely, yes. So you could say that the movement for black lives symbolizes the conversations about power. Let's first and foremost agree, because you can see the global nature of this. You can see what conversations, even on the continent of Africa, we started to have as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement. You can actually see that it reinforces how African countries started to look at themselves when they saw how the rest of the world was responding on COVID and vaccines mm. didn't make it to the continent in mm. the way that they expected. There are layers and layers to this. And I think for the first time, it unearthed a conversation that was really flowing below the radar mm. 
over many generations because history tells us a lot about this. Before BLM, some of our institutions were experiencing conversations around decolonizing the academy, decolonizing the curriculum. We already were doing the research around why there's so few black women professors in the academy, all right? The research already existed. There was an exhibition just on the eve of the outbreak of COVID in the UK. So I think BLM represents, it brought together many simmering conversations. But here is what I think about what it does. Because it said power has been resting in a different place all this time. Certainly it hadn't been resting in the black community or in the community of colored non-white mm. people. Let's, let's be clear. And that in that period, a number of wrongs had been done. A number of injustices had been committed in so many different ways because of the manifestations that they had in people's lives. And I think in the wake of COVID, Initially, people were like, oh my goodness, because it yeah. was clear that more people were dying, more people mm. of color were dying, and that there were structural underpinnings of why they, the quality of their lives, of their health, wasn't such that allowed them to be resilient during COVID. All those things came out, and it brought out with it a lot of emotions. But you then saw, and then one of our colleagues just published a book, Nicola Rolock published a book, The Racial Code. You then, you then realized that in the conversations we were having was a combination of different kinds of responses. People who felt really, genuinely sorry that this had to happen, this kind of loss had to happen. That's fine that you're saying there is sympathy. I don't want to say mm. empathy, right? You had those who then started thinking, enough. So the conversation was, it was flowing in particular ways because it's one thing to have sympathy, but what do we do about mm. it going forward? This is where, the, this is where things yeah. have become tough. Mm. If we're going to do something about this going forward, let's talk about the structures of power and inclusion that we've been talking about. It then brought inside, and I'm paraphrasing in a way, and I'm also trying to periodize it in a particular way because this is not the full story. But then you had the decolonizing movement that says, here's what we've been saying all this while. Yeah. And therefore, if we bring this to the surface, we need to dismantle this. When you say you need to dismantle the power order, on the other side of it, it's enough. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sorry you died in large numbers. Sorry all these injustices. But this might mean erasing our power. Yeah. Okay? But those who are trying to put balance to it would say it's not about clearing the deck yeah. and substituting one form of power for another. Yeah. That, that's where the debate is. And there are those who are in denial. And so the culture was that we see sometimes, we see governments go frame and they actually magnify some of these conversations because it suits their own yeah. purpose. But to the denialism that says, no, we were not really historically like this. Mm. And by the way, there's also a small segment of the black elite that carries this conversation on behalf of the majority white elite. Yep. And that, that's where we are at the moment. The way I think, and I have tried to intervene in this, 
Because it's a conversation we need to have because we can't have one part of society. We're having it in a racial way in Europe, in the UK in particular. We're having it in an ethnic way in many African countries. We can't have one part of the society that permanently just is a non-looker, is one that is at the bottom of the rung, and you do not, in the 21st century, think about the structures of power. Mm. And within a university environment, I have not rejected the decolonizing the curriculum narrative because it is real. In the studies I've done as Vice President for International Affairs five years ago, long before we started having this COVID and Black Lives Matter conversations, we had focus group discussions, yeah. we had interviews, mm. where students would say, here's how I'm experiencing the curriculum. Mm. Those things are real in their lives, because if you come from South Africa and then you've yeah. sat in an international development class and it's only European examples yeah. you have been getting there, you have every right to really ask whether your lived experiences are look different. That actually, actually, that's how the ALC fellows, for example, have engage the king space and it's very energizing mm. for someone to say life looks different from what you've just painted in the sudan this is how it looks in south africa this is how it looks in in nigeria this is what it is that is enriching and i then propose that we call something cultural competency as a program that mm. starts by saying let us really define it as the ability to see the world through the eyes of the other. Because if you see the world through my eyes, understand what it was like growing up in a Nigerian village without access mm. to electricity and pipe-bound water in the 60s and 70s, you will understand why, as a child, I didn't play with this thing. Mm. And you will understand why some of the idioms and expression that you use mm. in the mm. English system are not things that I was engaging mm. at that time. Then it makes you think, aha, Maybe I shouldn't have been framing my exam question mm. in a way that assumes that you have, mm. you imbibed this, right? I almost wonder if it should be a cultural incompetence class mm. <laughs> <laughs> where, you, where you should realize mm. that actually I, from my experiences growing up, yes. will never understand what it meant to grow up, as you said, uh, yes. in your Nigerian village. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. But I should, be, it also shifts, power also shifts, power and privilege shifts. Because imagine when I started at King's, I didn't have power mm. and privilege. Today I do. Mm. And so introducing positionality to this, mm. reflexivity to this, positionality is one of the starting points in the cultural competency. Because if, mm. I, if I recognize my privilege, then I'm more aware of how I engage that space. Mm. If I'm able to see through your own lens, and I just trade places sometimes, I can have, we can have difficult conversations. So to mm. date, I think more than 20 students, and we, we would have this for students and staff, more than 2,000 students, sorry, have started the cultural competency journey. The staff and the teachers in particular should be part of it, and they are, as mm. well as program administrators. I think it's only then, it's only after that, mm. that we can engage difficult conversations around the power that underlines the decolonizing debate. To close, perhaps, yes. I, what I find really helpful is I think there's a, there's a strong resonance between what you've just shared now as it relates to the decolonizing movement mm. in academia, mm. in Global North spaces, mm. and with what you were saying earlier about the work that needs to be done in African countries 
and African leaders to approach it. And the resonance that I see is this idea of we need to first prepare ourselves and do the work of understanding what is the world we want to be building before we choose to challenge the powers that be. Because when we do that, we have to be able to present an alternative world and a world which includes them as opposed to excludes them because that power will not want to be dismantled. You're brilliant. What that tells me is that somehow you followed my trail of of thought. I think we're, we're speaking the same language here. That's actually why if we see that as the thing that we need to really break down, we need to do it at multiple mm. levels. We need yeah. to see it as a continuum. Mm. And it means we can have really difficult conversations mm. without breaking mm. ourselves. If we end up in a place of violence all the time because it's seen as a binary, right or wrong. And as Nicola Rolox goes to great length in her introduction to say, it's not a binary of white people good, black people Mm. bad, or black people good, white people bad. There is no binary in this because in the global space, we have a lot of work to do together, Mm. whether on the environment, whether Mm. on the ways in which we're beginning to see disaster and conflict represent itself. We will not do everything together, but there's some things that bind us really strongly. And at all layers, there are things that bind us. And the idea that one group of people would have power absolutely to the detriment of another group of people cannot be the way in which we live life Mm -hmm. in the 21st century. If even a third of my classroom or a third of my students and my colleagues understand this and begin to translate Mm -hmm. that in the way that the discourse as well as the action takes place, then maybe we'll get somewhere Mm -hmm. in another decade or two. Well, <laughs> to be part of that course, uh, thank you so much for me thank for you, the time, thank you. for sharing your brilliance and your learnings with us. That's very yeah. generous of you. Yeah. Thank you for your generosity. Yeah. Thank you for a really excellent conversation. Thanks for listening to my conversations with Funmi. Funmi is an inspiring leader who's working hard on preparing young leaders from the continent to bring about the change that so many envisage. With the development dilemma, we're trying to build a community of critical thinkers and thought. And so if you don't yet, please follow us on Instagram at The Development Dilemma or join our newsletter, which will be linked in the episode description, to hear about new episodes, interesting articles, and live events. I'm not a man, 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 I'